Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides mental health resources to people who are navigating the stigma of a positive herpes STI diagnosis. I still hate that I accidentally slipped up and say that positive STI diagnosis is so redundant because obviously it's positive if you have an STI diagnosis, right? But um, the podcast it features interviews of people who are living with STIs about their experiences from their diagnosis to disclosures. So today's guest is eating, so I'm gonna stall for time while she finishes her food. No, don't you ain't gotta. Oh my, I, I ain't never seen nobody eat that fast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, we've known each other for how long? Mm, at least six years. So, it's been six years. Yep. And we met on Plenty of Fish, mm-hmm. the dating, <laughs> dating site. What a great place. <laughs> 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 laughing gonna make me cough. All right, so I gotta watch the laughing. I gotta watch the laughing. Um, but, yeah, we met on there. And at this point in time, I knew I had herpes. Didn't tell you I had herpes. You didn't have herpes at this point either, right? Nope. And yeah, we just kind of clicked and stayed connected. Never actually met. It's actually our first time fucking video chatting, even. Oh yeah, huh? Yeah. yeah. So this is it's like just our. Like I thought it would be. <laughs> awkward or like what? Well, how do you, no, how are you feeling? I just, I, I feel like I know you so well, so I didn't anticipate seeing anything on the screen that I was not aware of. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, guess. Yeah, you look like your pictures, you look like, you know, you sound like the person I've been talking to for six years, so I think we're all good. <laughs> I'm hella nasally, though. Uh, I don't know what this I is. Noticed. Yeah. I noticed that you were a little nasally. I think it's allergies, because I have still been running outside in the mornings in the cold, like bundled up of course but like breathing in the cold has been kicking my ass still so I got this weird little thing that I try to hold back or if I gotta like I'll do that but um, that'll probably be when I mute myself so alright so when we met you didn't have herpes I had herpes and then around the time I was starting this podcast roughly four ish years ago um, I don't remember if you told me that you had herpes or if it no. was after that. Okay, let's let's no. go through that then. So, what happened to my recollection? First you had me help you with um, some branding stuff. Not not um, something positive for positive people. It was after that you had started um, on your journey of um, something positive for positive people. You had shown me your logo and you wanted my um, input on the logo cuz I do graphic design. Um, so that's when I learned, you know, because you then shared with me what it was going to be about. And I remember at the time that you told me, I can't remember what year this was, but it was, I would say, probably in the beginning of 2017 because I got my diagnosis September of 2017, directly following a dramatic event, which we'll get into. But um, you showed me your logo, told me the story behind it, and I remember thinking, huh, well, 
metaphysical cause of that is. <laughs> and so I went and got my little metaphysical book because I'm, you know, I've dealt with Lyme disease for a long time. And I looked at the meaning behind the metaphysical cause of herpes. And I was like, geez, that sounds like me. I hope I don't get that. <laughs> that was literally my thought process. And um, I thought that it was brave of you to, um, you know, like, one, share with me that you had that diagnosis, and then two, like, start branding yourself as not the herpes guy, but, you know, like, putting yourself out there as, like, this is what I'm focused on, helping people with, um, you know, at the time, I remember thinking, like, huh, he's really putting himself out there, like, that's, that's cool, but I was a little, like, huh, I wonder, like, how come I can't do stuff like that, and I don't even have herpes, so it was an interesting, like, inner happening in my mind when you told me but I didn't I didn't judge you or anything um not even a little bit so that was how I I listened and experienced um your disclosure to me okay and so fast forward to September and then you find out you have herpes yeah mm-hmm. yeah you were one of the people that I um asked you know sending pictures hey please tell me that this isn't what this is <laughs> um so yeah where to start with that well what type did you end up having um that's a good question actually because the first test i got um was the the the, the type that tests your antibodies so the IgG, the IgM for both types. I tested positive for both types. However, when I went back in um, about a week later, because I was like overly like, you know, trying to make sure that I had the accurate diagnosis, um, I actually got a swab of um, the lesion that was genital. Um, so that swab, so here's the, here's the thing with the swabbing. Um, I went in, I technically had like two different types of, outbreaks so the, there was one specifically like right underneath my right butt cheek <laughs> which was kind of like on my upper leg and that was like a, a fairly large patch of um i don't know the typical like what you see on the internet you know scary <laughs> and but then i had one little tiny like not even barely a sore on the like the inner lip so i was like well at the time i was treating myself with venom for Lyme disease um, so there's actually a protocol that you can do to, to treat Lyme disease which is a bacterial um, uh, infection with bee venom literally I was stinging myself with bees so what I know about bees is they're antimicrobial so I was like well if I can use that for that then I will um, sorry I had that open if I can use venom for bacterial things and viral things, this should work for this. So I literally just uh, kind of asked around for a little advice in my group of people that did bee venom, and I determined that I was going to just guinea pig myself and sting the patch on my leg four times. So I did that. Um, I did not sting my inner pussy lip though because <laughs> that was too scary for me I was like let me just try this out first within three days it was already like healing up it 
basically it, it went away so fast it started healing so fast that by the time I went into the doctor to get swabbed um, there was nothing to test on that patch the only place that they could test was that one spot that I was not brave enough to sting and so I tested positive only for type 2 in that in that um, region so that's the only spot that comes back when I have uh, you know any flares which is very rare and I kind of attribute it to you know either the testing for the IgG is somewhat inaccurate I, I really couldn't say because I've never had um, you know as far as type 1 goes I've never had a cold sore on my mouth I know that that's not the only place that you can get type 1 um, but I could not say for sure that I got type 1 based on the, the swabbing that I got done that day so all right. And what was your interaction with your tester? Like, how were they during your interaction? Um, you mean at the doctor? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the first place that I went to, um, they originally thought that I did not have herpes. She, it was kind of like a free clinic like a you know on as needed I, I had insurance but I this one I could get into right away and so I went there and she was not convinced that it was herpes um she said it didn't look severe it didn't look anything like you know herpes so she said you know maybe but um you know she didn't swab anything because again there was nothing to really swab except for like that one spot um, so this was, she performed the IgG, IgM antibody test. That's the one that came back with type 1 and type 2. Uh, I followed it up with a different doctor, um, and by this time, the patch that I had stumped was really starting to heal. And it, it did start to look like um, what I think we all know to be herpes. <laughs> so uh, when I went to that doctor, she was like, yeah, that's, that's herpes. <laughs> so that was like, a, you know, duh, obviously we've got the test. But we still did the swab, and it, it turned out to be type 2. So, uh, I mean, I'm fairly confident that I have type 2. Uh, I could not say with confidence type 1, but I wouldn't be surprised. Did you let them know that you had stung yourself with bee venom? Or you had stung yourself with I bees? Did. What did they say? Yeah. Um, they thought that that was unusual. <laughs> I wondered if they would have been supportive of you using any like alternative methods of treating yourself or if they would have been like, why'd you do that? So that's why I asked. Yeah, well, and I don't know if it's the way that I explain it. Um, I mean, I usually present my reasoning for stuff to doctors because of my experience in the medical realm, um, just because I've dealt with chronic Lyme disease and it's just a nightmare trying to navigate doctors and what what they believe they know versus what is actually happening with people with chronic Lyme disease. So I had an immense experience, 18 years, you know, seven, at the time probably more like 16, 16 years, um, a solid 16 years at the time of navigating health practitioners, you know, so I, I already had the science behind using bee venom for herpes. There's actually studies out there that show that it's being looked at 
and has been used successfully in vitro or in vivo. Don't quote me on that. Um, but there is a, a link that I could share with you that they've actually studied bee venom um, to specifically address herpes type 1 and 2 and other viruses as well. Yeah. So it's not just, um, you know, it's not just herpes, but they did see a lot of success. Of course, they haven't done human trials. Um, so, you know, there's that. Okay. Yeah. I would want to share that. So if you can send that to me whenever, that'd be awesome. Uh, you also have Lyme disease. What is that? So Lyme disease is um, what is referred to as, a. if you look at modern medicine um, definitions, it's a rare tick-borne disease that is caused by the bacteria spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, the reality of it is there's over 300,000 cases annually in the U.S. alone, and Lyme disease is rarely just Lyme disease. Um, the, the testing has been um, quite insensitive, you know, and, and we can compare it a little bit, you know, obviously not directly um, to how COVID testing has been. You know, there's not a lot of reliability in it, especially in its infancy. So um, there's there's controversy around the ability for the standardized testing for Lyme disease to be over 50% effective. So that means out of 300,000 people every year that will likely get infected, and it's, it's well over 300,000. The CDC is, is, you know, it jumped from 30,000 a year to probably over 11 times more in the course of the last five years. Now, this has been around since 1977-ish, you know, in the 70s is when there was the first outbreak. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's been around for a long time, but it's been minimized for a, a long time. So there's a lot of controversy around it. Very difficult to get diagnosed because modern medicine has been told for a very long time that it's very easy to treat, it's curable. And there's, you know, there's some truth in that because if you catch it right away, then yes, it's absolutely curable, just like uh, syphilis is curable. Another spirochete that is, you know, referred to as the great imitator. Um, so that's why there's some similarities between Lyme and syphilis. There's similar, um, they're, they're, they're different pathogens and they're different types of bacteria. However, they are spirochetes. So that means they are a spiral shaped, um, it's a corkscrew like looking bacteria and that allows them to act differently. Um, what's different about Lyme, it, you know, especially compared to syphilis, is that there's three different forms. And so once the bacteria gets into your system, if you don't treat it right away, or even if you do treat it right away, it can morph. It is so stealthy that it can morph into two different types of um, uh, forms and basically barricade itself and protect itself from being uh, completely eliminated. So that's why if you go through the standard course of treatment for Lyme disease, which is usually about three weeks, you know, four, if you're lucky, you'll get four weeks of doxycycline at a, maybe 200 milligrams a day. Um, that is sometimes not enough to knock out the pathogen. Um, and patients will struggle to get more treatment. Most people are not educated enough to know that they need more treatment. And that's why a lot of cases turn chronic. Um, that term in itself, chronic Lyme, is very controversial. Uh, and it, it leaves a lot of people to have to basically um, figure out how to treat themselves, especially if they if they don't get a diagnosis within the first year. It's it's a very big challenge. So, um, lots to unpack there for 
Yeah. Probably. Where does Lyme disease live? Like in your body? Where does Lyme disease? Everywhere. Oh. Because so. it's a corkscrew, it can literally get into every part of your body. Okay. Um, you know, in the in the Tuskegee study, for example, when they monitored syphilis for a number of years, 40 years, in um, black men, uh, you know, these black men that had syphilis, there was a treatment available. It was called antibiotics, and the study did not give them the medication. They wanted to see how people would progress over time with an untreated um, syphilis diagnosis. And so, anyway... Um, it literally, um, Lyme disease, it, it, it depends on what strain you have, of course. It depends on if you're co-infected with other pathogens because tick-borne illness is not just Lyme disease. It's Babesia, a blood parasite. Um, it's Bartonella, uh, cat scratch fever. So you can get these other things different ways as well. Um, so they're different pathogens. And, you know, the, like I said, the testing is, is not able to be um, reliable at this point, but you know, everyone will experience it differently. A lot of people will um, get arthritis at some point if they go untreated. A lot of people will develop digestive issues. It's multi-systemic. It's not very unsimilar to COVID in that it is it affects everybody so differently. And we're seeing a lot of these people called long haulers that really quite like never get over their their illness. They it's it takes so long for them to get over it um so to speak and you know i guess time will tell even with covid uh, patients like how long are these people being affected and why we still have yet to understand that in lyme disease something that's been around you know infecting people on a multi-systemic level meaning it, it gets into your organs it gets into your brain it gets into your bloodstream it gets into your joints it gets into your tissues it gets everywhere it's multi-systemic that's what that means um, they've even coined a new term called multi-systemic infectious disease syndrome. And so that can that can incorporate a lot of different infectious diseases. Um, so it's a, it's a layered illness that is not as straightforward as uh, modern medicine has allowed us to believe. And so, um, you know, there's a lot left to research and understand about it. Did having Lyme prepare you at all for having herpes? In ways, in ways, but in other ways, no. Because I think what was more devastating about having um, the diagnosis of herpes, because when I got it, it was, you know, under the circumstances that I got it, the reason it was so damaging to me, and when I say damaging, like I was so stressed out that I lost 20 pounds, which took me a long time to get back after healing from Lyme. And so that was you know, just losing that progress um, that I'd worked so hard for for years was what was so devastating about it. Um, and really what it came down to, why herpes was so much quote-unquote worse, is it was, you know, at least with Lyme disease, um, it wasn't something, it, one, it's something that people don't understand, and then number two, it's not viewed as, as dirty, quote-unquote. Um, because it's not a sexually transmitted disease, as far as we know. This could actually be a sexually transmitted disease. Thus, we don't know enough about it to say it is or isn't. But if it reflects any similarities, you know, to syphilis, it's, it seems logical to look at the possibility 
that Lyme disease can be sexually transmitted. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that says yes, but there's just not enough science to say, you know, yes or no. And so, you know, a, a few friends of mine have been diagnosed with Lyme, you know, and they've, well, I don't remember a tick bite, and I don't remember, you know, this and that, but I did have a girlfriend, or I did have a, a, a partner who had Lyme disease. So, you know, Lyme could be sexually transmitted. We already have seen that it can pass through um, uh, from mother to child through breast milk and through in utero, so through a pregnancy. Um, that's how some babies are born with Lyme. So a lot of people could have it just from being born to a mom that, uh, um, you know, had the infection and was carrying the infection. So, like I said, there's a lot that we don't know about it, but, um, yeah, it has Lyme disease prepared me for uh, getting herpes? Not really. <laughs> no, because the herpes diagnosis made me feel dirty for a bit because I was able, like, you know, in all the health problems that I've ever had, I never caught an STD. So that was, um, you know, pretty tough for me, especially considering who I got it from. So. Mm. You want to go there? No, we can. Alright, so when you say that having herpes yourself made you feel dirty, even after having known someone for a few years who had herpes, did that not influence any of your thoughts or beliefs about yourself? Not initially, no. Okay. So. No, not initially. Alright, so now when you say considering who you got it from, Let's go into that. Yeah, so um, uh, there could be a trigger warning here that we should maybe mention because I am going to discuss a little bit of. Uh, I was going to, yeah, I was just going to put it in the uh, show notes that this is, yeah, this okay. is the point of the trigger warning for sexual abuse. Okay. So um, <coughs> I, you know, about three months prior to my diagnosis or four months, um, July, August, September, yeah. Um, so yeah, probably about three months before my diagnosis, I did experience, um, it's hard for me to call it a rape because it was someone that I knew and someone that I'd been with before. And also I did not leave, you know, like there was a presentation, you know, by this person that I was, with that you know I, I declined so there was um, an advance a sexual advance made I noticed that I was like really struggling with saying no but I still said no and I, I actually got aggressive and I um, you know pushed this guy off and I like reiterated to him like you you know that this is a big deal like you can't do that and you know he apologized he understood yet the next day, he proceeded to try to make advances again, and I just froze. You know, I froze because you know there's been times where freezing has saved my life. I've been in um, one abusive relation, physically abusive relationship in the past, and you know, I just, I just froze, and I still did not call that like that allowance. Of, of that sexual activity, even when I left, like I knew that I did not feel good about it, but I was able to minimize it. Um, even with my friend, 
you know, after I shared what had happened, my friend, you know, from the Lyme community, um, told me that it was rape. And I worked at a women's abuse shelter at the time on top of, a, you know, doing graphic design for a, a company. And so I still was struggling with that word. Um, I think it was when I got back home, you know, cause I was traveling at the time I, and I went back to work. Um, there was a shelter dog that worked there named, uh, what's her name? Stella. And Stella <laughs> was a girl dog, obviously. Um, and I've always been cool with Stella until I walked through the door that day. And I walked through the door and Stella growled at me in a way she never had before. And I was like, wow, like, come on, Stella, it's me. Like, I was not gone that long. I was only gone, like, like seven days. Chill, you know? And at the time, there was a worker that was just right nearby. She's like, wow, that's crazy. Stella only growls at men. And it was like something clicked in me where I was like, huh, this dog can sense this gross male energy that I'm carrying around, that I'm mad about that I'm, like this abuse like in my opinion because she was an abuse shelter dog <laughs> and she just growled at men like to me I was like this dog just smells the abuse on me and that was when I went and I looked up the word rape and the terms and like the definitions and I was like oh my gosh this has happened a lot this is uh this is this is crazy has happened more than once and it was like something started spiraling like all of these abusive situations that I had been in for a very long time um all started surfacing and I think it started to become clear to me like how much I did not have any idea what self-love was or love or anything I got very confused and so what I did in response to that was turn to my ex who have always been around he had been waiting for me to kind of like figure things out and and you know he was always there for me through a lot and and he was still my friend I thought and so I turned to him in this turbulent time you know and he had just lost his mother at the time you know around the same time that I went through this this trauma myself so we were both dealing with traumas independently um we kind of reunited, uh, you know, in a sexual way, obviously. And right after reuniting with him is when I started to get symptoms. Now, I probably could have handled the, um, the diagnosis. But what happened after that for me was I started freaking out because a part of me thought that he was trying to do this on purpose to me and it's almost like I thought that he knew that he had this and that he was purposefully like trying to get me back for I don't know maybe not choosing him the last you know the, the three years prior um there's a lot going through my mind and I just wanted I just wanted proof that I wasn't being lied to by someone that I tr that, that I trusted because out of anybody that I've ever dealt with, um, I trusted him 100%. So I, you know, asked, I told him what was going on. He basically told me that I didn't have herpes. I mean, I was showing him my actual, like, 
marks <laughs> and my symptoms and I was showing him like like uh, you know screenshots of like like look this is what it looks like on the internet this is what my leg looks like like this is clearly this and so you need to go get tested I went and got tested right away you know and in my mind is like well if I went and got tested right away and you go get tested right away well if you're negative then you we, we know that you know this is something I had before you know what I mean so but he would not he would not go um knowing who he is you know it, it's possible he's never liked going to the doctors his mentality is well if I don't get a test that tells me I have something I don't have it and so it was like his denial was very very high you don't have that Jenny you don't have that he was even willing to lay down with me the next night you know when I was in suspicion of what I had which made it even more suspect when I did get the diagnosis I'm like you I was telling you that this is what this could be and you still didn't care to me that says you knew something or you really I don't know that was weird <laughs> he never got tested he, he made um he made an appointment and they, they said, well, that's not urgent, so, you know, come in in 30 days. You know, we're not going to be able to know anything if you're asymptomatic unless it's 30 days, you know, so just wait 30 days. And I was livid because I knew that he could go get tested right away, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Even with all of my insight and knowledge on medical, he did not listen to me. And I was really mad. I was getting so mad. Um anyway long story short we got to the point where he was gonna go get tested 30 days I tried to like bite my tongue he went to the doctor and he told me that the doctor said that if he didn't have any symptoms that he doesn't have it and I said D I call him D D that doesn't make sense and that's not true can carry herpes and you probably are <laughs> and if you weren't before if this was something that I had before and you know you you were with me like during a time where I was clearly having an outbreak what appeared to be my initial outbreak uh, then you probably have it to this day I still don't know if he has ever gotten tested and that was that was the betrayal that I felt like was probably worse than a rape, you know. Um, any of them that I've experienced, uh, that was probably the worst betrayal that I've ever had because I actually really trusted him, and to this day he still could not respect me enough to to get tested or respect himself enough. You know, I've given up on that. We're still somewhat friends, but. I I had to completely lose, you know, him because of how he, he treated me afterwards. Um, and so it was a little bit more than just the diagnosis, but yeah, um, that one was tough. That I lost 20 pounds in probably two weeks, and uh, it was not not a good time. <laughs> mm. Thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, I've told bits of that story. Um, about him just going to the doctor and not being able to get tested because they were like, you don't have any symptoms. So 
<laughs> Thank you for uh, giving the whole story. Um, yeah. I want to really, I mean, there's a lot that I want to touch on, mainly the abuse portion. Um, but it sucks that so much of the burden of responsibility for your sexual health as a woman, it, it it's on you. You know, like you had to encourage him to go to the doctor for his own health. You were like, hey, I actually am having an outbreak right now. And he was just like, I don't care. Fuck that shit. Like, <laughs> and basically, yeah. And like, that's that that's where we are. Like, these are the kinds of things that happen. And I don't hear from enough men who are in flip flop situations here. I don't really hear, well, there's someone that I'm going to interview who actually has had the conversation and initiated it, but it seems like a lot of times it's women having to initiate conversations around sexual health, wearing condoms, uh, talking about birth control, and like, the guys just seem resistant to that, and these are generally heterosexual relationships. Yeah, yeah, It's, um, it's wild to me, you know. Even with the sexual uh, health, you know, topics, the the burden is really, you know, if there's an oops, a lot of the burden falls on the woman because, well, who's going to be left holding the bag? Literally, um, a, a baby. <laughs> you know, if we're talking about procreating, um, the, the birth control often falls on the woman. Um, you know, even even if you wear a condom or have the man wear a condom there's a level of responsibility like you have to be able to trust that person so much that they're going to be able to check to make sure that the condom is intact you know because if there's a if there's a you know a condom break and, and there's a you know a, a chance for pregnancy well again the, you know the woman has to either be on birth control i'm not um because of the way birth control has affected my health in the past i've been off of it for a long time so i have to be in tune with my body i have to be in tune with my cycle, I have to know when I'm ovulating, I have to know, you know, um, all that stuff. So, I mean, even if you tell a dude to wrap it up, you still gotta like check to make sure that he's not, you know, an idiot, you know? (laughs) So it, it, it does, it takes the fun out of having sex, like for me anyway, you know, and and probably for a a few women and, and maybe even men sometimes. Um, but I can just speak for myself. It takes the fun out of something that should be fun um, for me. Um, you know, even with all the trauma I've endured with sex, because every time I have had fun, there has been a, a level of trauma that seems to follow it, you know, because I really enjoyed my time reconnecting with my ex. It was some of the best sex I've ever had. But can't enjoy life if it ain't toxic. Worst. In light of it being toxic as shit. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was ruined by the, the, the breaking of that bond, the breaking of that trust, um, something I never thought that I would have broken. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it was a tough one for me and a very long journey after that, um, you know, to heal. But ultimately, I, I you know, you hear all those people talking about, like, well, you know, things just, you know, as, as shitty as having herpes is, it really showed me how to, you know, approach life differently. I, I have better boundaries. Um, you know, usually there ends up being some kind of like, hey, this was like the best thing that ever happened to me. 
I, I really hoped to have those moments. And I think in some ways it, it really did lead me to loving myself better and having better boundaries. I started seeing like, even though I continued to choose that like avoidant men that really probably weren't shit. <laughs> Do you know even any, oh, wait, 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 real quick. Yeah. Wait, real quick. Do you know any anxious <laughs> men though? Or do you just friend zone them? Like, I, I find that a lot of times with women that I've spoken to, like, they tend to pursue the avoidant men and, like, the anxious or needy yeah. men end up becoming friends well, or they just don't rock with it, them at all. Yes. Yeah. And I, the thing for me is what, what's been difficult is, you know, there's been friends that I've had that have been great, great to me and that have been interested in me, but at the same time, there's been a level of fear for me in, in moving that intimacy to a sexual level. Cause what if, you know, what if there's this belief that sex, you know, ruins things in, in my life anyway. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to lose those friends and it, you know, so it's scary to me to do that. And, and ultimately I think it comes down to the, the negative experiences with men. Why would I want to let someone close to me, to get hurt like that again and this goes far beyond you know just the ex that gave me herpes you know and that's what I'm going to call him because he never got checked and it only makes sense I got symptoms right after him so that's what he is he's this herp he's the fucking ex that gave me herpes like that's what it is um but yeah I think I have gone towards um avoidant men that appear to be strong um to probably learn the difference between what real strength is and, and to really have it for myself. Um, the good thing about those ancient men, you know, after the diagnosis, they showed me that this diagnosis really ain't shit either because, <laughs> um, you know, they didn't give a fuck. I, I, didn't, I didn't have one guy give a shit if I had hurt one Only one person seemed to care and said, well, I can't have sex with you. I, I accepted, and I said, that's all right. Um, for a while, I'm going to disconnect from you as a friend. No offense. You know, he even got mad because, you know, how dare you cut off the friendship because I want to protect myself from herpes. I said, hey, you can protect yourself from herpes. I respect your choice. Respect that there's consequences. Right now, I don't feel like having the energy around me of you being judgmental about something like that. I don't want it. And so I'm disconnecting for a while. There will be a time where I might feel like being your friend, but it's not today. It's not right now. And so I set that boundary. Three months later, guess who's in my phone wanting to apologize about, you know, how they acted and, and what they've learned. And now they know that I can give them head and, and, and they can have sex with me and they won't get infected and now they know all this stuff so now we can have sex and I'm like yeah no I don't want to have sex with you <laughs> just because you're choosing me now no I would not want to waste an experience trying to have sex with someone that will probably be up in their head about it I don't want that responsibility go find someone that you're safe with you know that or quote-unquote that makes you feel safe and I did you know depart with some more education we're, we're friends to this day so I mean that's cool um but yeah he definitely um got some education that he didn't have before and it was a good it was a good experience for me to um 
you know, I think a lot of people struggle with the being rejected thing. Um, I've seen it in, you know, some of the support groups and I, I resonate with it, but not, not to the degree that I think um, others do because I really haven't had that negative of an experience with, with getting rejected. Um, that, that, like I said, that one time that I did have a rejection, I, it was a good teachable moment for me, like to say, well, yeah, that's okay. I respect you. And I know it's not about me, but because of this, I'm going to respect what I need. And right now I need space from the energy of even feeling like this is a dirty thing to have, you know? And so it was a good practice for me to, to honor my own boundaries mm-hmm. and it turned out well. Uh, for someone who's experienced so much abuse, would you say that the experiences of the abusive relationships you've been in have helped you with creating and building boundaries, or were they already present before the abusive relationships and patterns that you found yourself in? I believe they were before the lack of boundaries. Can you say that again? I coughed. Uh, yes, I believe that they were... I believe that they were, um, I was boundaryless, boundaryless, yes, I was without boundaries well before abuse. I like the word boundaryless. Um, boundaryless, yeah. Um, yeah, my, my, um, feelings of being abused, I think, stemmed back as far as I can remember. I don't really know where they come from. I have my suspicions. They're a little esoteric, but, um, ultimately, I, I do feel that, um, I was very sensitive as a very little girl, and um, I just naturally fell into roles of not really knowing myself, you know. And so, just the energies around me, um, I took personal. Um, so, you know, maybe I felt the way I did because maybe I was around a lot of people that experienced abuse. There's really no way for me to know sometimes, but ultimately, I, I do think that. The feeling of, of not having boundaries occurred long before I was ever, you know, in in my own experience of being abused. So, yeah. So it oh. didn't help. <laughs> in fact, I would say the abuse taught me to have boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I have a hard head, so it took a, a lot of experiences of, of different types of abuse as well. Um, because I think the most damaging abuse was not even the ones where I was like in fear of my life. That was definitely a big one because it happened so early in life. Um, but the psychological abuse was probably the worst because the minute someone can make you doubt your reality, and then you don't trust your reality. You don't trust where you're at. You don't trust yourself. And that's a, that's a very scary place for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, if anything, the abuse has taught me to have better boundaries. Okay. Uh, that's very unfortunate because you didn't experience what you knew to be abuse or abusive relationships until, what, probably late teens, adulthood, where? Like, would you, if you could give yeah. it a year? I would say the minute I started dating, I had, you know, boyfriends that were stealing money and going to jail and prison for 20 years and then one died and then abuse yeah so I was like by the time I hit 20 I was pretty much like 
in a, a pretty traumatized state and I yeah. had no idea mm-hmm. until you know and that's when my health problems started so even the Lyme disease it's it's linked to the abuse because I didn't have the Lyme disease symptoms and still until I was traumatized and my immune system was tanked and my you know I was depressed I was very depressed and um, that depression alone can tank the immune system that's why you know with herpes no stress that's like the number one thing just don't stress out because then you'll be fine like if you just not stress out you'll be fine because <laughs> yeah. your immune system will be able to handle it and so um that's been a key for me because i've been so stressed and it's like i i do not afford any room to be stressed out and so i, I even have to have boundaries with my own mind like hey sounds like you're getting stressed out Stop that. <laughs> Stop that right now. Go mm-hmm. do something else. Um, so. the, the point that uh, <laughs> I want to touch on is uh, the boundaries not coming until after you've experienced abuse. I think that this is something that I'm learning. You know, I'm 32 now, and it took until I was probably 30 to find sex educators and other people talking about herpes and sexuality and uh, boundaries even from their own experience and I'm learning that the sex education that many of us have received was only exclusive to abstinence, condom use, and avoidance of pregnancy, right? Not talking about, you know, women's cycles, not talking about um, sexual identities and gender and not talking about one of the most important things that I've learned is just like consent and boundaries. So if your children, you know, the parents of children or the school systems are like, oh, I don't want to talk. I don't want my kids talking about sex. I don't want to think about my kids having sex. Like sex and mental health are so interconnected. I find that when people receive their diagnosis, oftentimes they have like this complete blow to their identity because they're thinking to themselves, oh my God, this is this is my life now, this is me. I don't know who I am anymore because I'm not able to have sex like I was before. My sex yeah. life has now been completely just I, damaged. I have a stain on my record. I have a, I have a bad record now. Yeah. And it's not just... That's what it feels like. And it's not just on your sexuality, like it's on your psyche because that's who you now believe yourself to be. You now believe yourself to be that tainted aspect of your genitals right and so what I believe like sex education what I'm learning that sex education also includes is all of these aspects of mental health such as being able to recognize abuse and have boundaries for yourself have your no heard understanding consent these are all aspects that need to be included with sex education but if the parents and systems in place can get out of the whole um this is what sex is and see that sex isn't just limited to that one percent that they choose to focus on but this whole entire aspect of like relationship management being able to go oh you know what that's a red flag with this person that might be an abuser I'm not allowing myself into this relationship. And I consider that to be uh, even a part of STD prevention efforts because how often do abusers cheat and then lie and then they just aren't safe people. 
and safety is a very important aspect of relating to other humans and developing intimacy and having sex with them so if we can't get these things set up as a foundation uh, in our sex education when we start to receive it and talk about these things we go into adulthood boundaryless with the idea that sex looks only one way and the first time you have sex and it doesn't look that way then perhaps you're like oh well I guess this is what it is so if your first time having sex is actually rape you may go on moving forward and every time that you have sex after that you're expecting rape or like that's just what your norm is and sex is painful it's not something that you can communicate about it's something that uh you you learn from places that aren't giving you the truth about it and now like this is your reality and your relationship to sex and your relationship to abuse and your relationship to people based on your absence of boundaries yeah and i i think you know the word relationship you know it's very much tied into the sexual conversation, you know, even with education, like you were saying, um, we were taught the physical aspects of it, but what is this for? Well, it's for procreating. It's for enjoyment. It's for enjoying the process of, you know, sometimes producing children, (laughs) you know, like that is the result. That's not the only reason we want to have sex, but it is one of the things that occurs you know, as a byproduct of that action. And so we leave out the whole relationship factor. And in that relationship factor is tied into it. It's so enmeshed, the emotional component. As a society in America, in the world mostly, you know, especially westernized um, uh, areas, we don't have a focus on emotions. We don't give them much value. And tying us back around to, you know, how we started this conversation when, when you told, when you disclosed to me and you were telling me about the podcast, um, I looked up the metaphysical, you know, and and that is ultimately the metaphysical is the, either the spiritual cause or the underlying emotional factor that allows for this manifestation of herpes and that manifestation According to, you know, the, the literature that's out there right now, of course, everyone could have their own interpretation. But the, the causative factor of something like herpes, especially genital herpes, because that's mostly determined to be like the, of the sexual variety, um, it's shame. It's guilt and shame around sex, around your sexual identity, around how sex feels. So with, with herpes being so common, and such a permanent fixture, you know, something you can't get rid of. This idea of guilt and shame, it, it is, it's shown in how people are devastated by receiving this type of diagnosis, which at the end of the day, it's nothing more than a harmless skin condition that, you know, people don't shame people for having cold sores, but we get shamed for genital herpes, why? Because sex has been something that has been psychologically embedded in us to be something that is shameful. However, it is also used in our society to sell everything. Everything that sells usually involves some type of sexual uh, integration into the message that that's sex sells. So it's very, it's a confusing message for especially young people. And we all were embedded with this, this confusing message of, hey, 
sex is bad, don't don't do sexual shit unless it's behind closed doors. Or I'm getting paid um, for it. However, we are. Oh yeah, or you know, but I'm gonna try to sell you this fucking game with a bunch of sexual shit in it. But don't like it, like it enough to buy it. But fuck you and shame you for for enjoying it or porn, all of that. Like there's just such a. Uh, it's a psychologically um, fucked up thing that we have going on here especially in America but like we have the most sexually open and the most sexually suppressed messages happening all at the same time and why for what you know so that is definitely um, the emotions underneath of it It, it, you know a lot of people have shame in sex um, especially if there's been you know rape or uh, sexual abuse and for women we have to understand that and this isn't just limited to women anyone who has been um, abused sexually but historically women have suffered we have been treated as baby machines in the past this is a historical fact we see it in the women's suffrage when even even if we take it to you know when the country was uh, colonized you know the, the people that came here <laughs> Uh, that were not here before, they were literally baby machines. Like, there there was such a need to have a partnership for survival. Why? Because if you had more kids, well, then you could could have more farming employees. You could have more help to survive. So that was the woman's job. That's why the women had that job, because they were the only ones that could make the babies. So, of course, they're going to... um, be exposed to different types of abuse. Uh, men have different types of uh, abuse in society as well that we don't really talk about a lot, like the pressure to provide, and you know. Um, so these these gender roles are they're not really um, they're not really understood for what they are, you know, or or how they came to be that. And I think you know, women in particular, as far as abuse goes, but sexually speaking. You know, a lot of times there was even marital rape. So we have to understand that 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 feeling of being abused could come from our family line because there's epigenetics. There's the the factor of like your great grandmother can be imprinted with trauma of of being raped repeatedly by her husband, someone that she trusted. Um, But it was a business arrangement. It was for survival. No one had time to feel anything. You know, and so we, we have that ability to see like those patterns of abuse, same as addiction, can be embedded into the DNA, et cetera, et cetera. So this is why, you know, even from a scientific standpoint, we can see how these feelings, feelings of trauma can get passed down and, and they won't stop until we have these conversations and address the feelings behind them, in, in my opinion. Last question I got for you. <coughs> Damn. How are you? <coughs> Hold on. How are you navigating your relationships now? Oh, very slowly. Very slowly. Um, I really can't afford any more trauma. (laughs) And so I make sure that if I am dealing with someone, um, I'm very cautious. And I, I, I have to spend a lot of time building a friendship first where I can really trust that it's safe for me to have sex with someone and so I'm not having sex very often because it's not because of the diagnosis I can go out and probably have sex with whoever I want but I'm not choosing to do that because I would like to you know 
not have more problems. <laughs> so I have been very selective and slow moving and stubborn. And, you know, it's, it's difficult at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you take care of yourself with all of the trauma and all of the triggers that have been implanted in you as someone who's still looking to date, make friends, and get to a point of being sexual with people? It's been an interesting year for that. Um, I, I realized that, you know, the, the stress, you know, there's always going to be stresses in life. And so I realized that I need to have good um, uh, coping mechanisms in place. So that, in, for me, involved going to therapy and doing EMDR, which is uh, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's specifically for trauma trauma victims. Um, very, very effective for people with single traumas. Um, a little bit more complex for people with complex trauma. So it takes a lot more to address multiple, um, you know, long-standing trauma, which with, with any long-term illness, you know, is going to be there, especially if the abuse is involved. So... That's how I've been managing, um, aside from just really giving my time and attention to those that I, I know for sure love and trust, that I love and that I trust and that I can um, depend on to just accept me where I am. So that's been very healing. Um, it's actually been very painful um, to even let in that type of love because it's like I've never really done it, you know? The love has been around for me to accept, but I never really quite accepted it to the degree that I have now. So, um, you know, it's it's a it's a touch and go. You know, one foot on the accelerator, one on the brake. Sometimes it's like kind of a little bit weird getting used to um, staying consistent at self care. You know, um, but the progress is being made, and and I do believe it's been very helpful. So I just try to focus on what I can do today and, um, you know, be very forgiving and and compassionate when I do run into tough spots and know who I can come to, you know, whether it's a therapist or my friends or my family, like just having that support system in place um, is really important. That's why, like, even having these support groups, I personally don't, like, need a support group because I have such a good base but like the support group for some people some people do not they're not they're not able to have that with their family they don't have the support network that they need in their community or they feel like they don't so it's like having these types of groups those were very important to me early on in my diagnosis you know Al-Anon was great for me um, because I struggled with families with alcoholism Um, SLAA um, there's a women's group for um, love addiction that was really helpful to me. There's a lot of really good resources out there if you are struggling with like. Um, obviously, what you do is, you know, uh, support groups online, Facebook, all that stuff has been really helpful. That's how I maintain. I, I have a lot of friends because of that. All right. Thank you so much for making this happen. Alright, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Um, You know about the podcast community. I'm only talking about it on the podcast. Uh, Instagram Live is up, so anyone who's here, there's a point in the podcast. uh, will also know about it. But, (coughs) damn. (coughs) 
uh, created a Facebook group just for people who listen to the podcast as a means of like connecting people through that common interest rather than it just exclusively being, oh, everybody has herpes here, so it's safe for me to not worry about that. No, I want you to be able to integrate yourself into society as someone who that doesn't even fucking matter to. So begin to uh, connect with people regardless of that, but just through mutual interest. And I hope that by people connecting through the podcast, that allows them to connect through their other favorite podcasts or other hobbies and interests in the virtual world until, you know, people are comfortable with going back out into society and meeting people in real life and getting involved with their hobbies, passions, and interest groups. So uh, in the meantime, that's there. You can just add me on Facebook, Courtney Brame, shoot me a message, um, or look up the podcast community yourself. I'm the one approving everybody, so I initiate a conversation to make sure that this is how you heard about it. Um, I had a nice older lady, because it's called Something Positive for Positive People. She was desperate for something positive in times of uncertainty and negativity and she was like it's just nice to see something positive i asked how she heard about it she said she just googled or searched on facebook for positive groups and this came up so uh i let her know what it was about and uh we determined that this wasn't for her you know just keeping it simple but um that's what this is so i don't know exactly what it's going to evolve into but um going into 2021 i would like to just see more people who are at a place where they're comfortable beginning to engage in conversations with people who may not have uh, a shared status but they see that there are people who are receptive to the dialogue so that's my goal there um, if you want to support something positive for positive people, you can leave a donation by visiting www.spfpp.org. And on the homepage, you'll see options to donate. There's Patreon, there's Venmo, and there's PayPal. And um, if you need other options, please don't hesitate to reach out. Till next time, stay sex positive.